From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. One of the best parts of the holidays is the exchange of gifts with loved ones. And it's especially joyful when that gift is a steaming, hot, homemade tamal wrapped in a corn husk or a banana leaf. It's the original food made with nixtamalized corn. Before the tortilla, there was the tamal. That's writer Bill Esparza. He's a journalist known in L.A. for often being the first to break taco news. Don't you love that there is such a thing as taco news? Eating tamales is a holiday pastime for many Los Angeles families, so Bill's here with a rundown of some of our city's best. Hi there. Hey, Evan. How are you doing? I'm good. I love this time of year. It's tamal season. It is total tamal all the time. So... <laughs> Christmas time is an opportunity for families to get together around a theme and also to make something together. And it seems like in many households in this city in particular, it's all around the tamal. Yeah, this is definitely when when the amateurs also have their tamaladas and, uh, you know, the people that only do it once a year. Of course, they're not, they're not amateurs, but, you know, they don't do it every day. They don't do it as a business. And year-round, professionals make tamales, but this is the time of year we sit with our families and everybody gets involved. There is a, a matriarchal order to it, but, you know, men and boys also help. And, and of course, everybody's going to eat them. Mexico's 32 regions have their own distinct styles. Do you have a particular preference? I love seafood tamales. The tamales you get in um, Nayarit and uh, Sinaloa, like the shrimp ones, the the oyster tamales. In the Afro-Mexican communities of Oaxaca and Guerrero, they do mussel tamales. And is there anywhere here in the Southland where we can find such tamales? At El Coraloense. Maria, Natalie's mom, is making them and selling them for the season. I saw shrimp tamales, I think, somewhere on Instagram or something like that. So they're, they're around, and definitely they're in people's homes. Like, people are making them for their own families. As far as commercially available, those are hard to get. But, yeah, they're doing it. Could you talk about Colombia's two versions? Yeah, the Colombian tamales are really meals. And what's crazy about those tamales is that they eat them with bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tamal the size of your head. And then they have an arepa or bread with it and then hot chocolate. So it's really, it's not like in Mexican families where you eat a bunch of tamales. You eat this tamal. They have whole meat with bones on them, hard-boiled eggs. And it's really just about how the tamales are put together. The vayunos are with ground corn. The tolimenses from the Tolima region of Colombia are made with, with seasoned corn flour mix, mixed with cooked rice. But I love this idea that there would be one giant tamal that you kind of carve into rather than unwrap individually. Right. I mean, you have that in Central America with the naca tamal, where it's a large tamal as well. In Colombia, they have that. In Mexico, we have those too. Like the sacahuil is the size of like a table. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge tamal that they cook in a pit underground. In the Yucatan, they have the tamal pie that they do during Dia de los Muertos, which uh, Florida Yucatan here in L.A. does. The, the mukpil pollo, which they just did for Dia de los Muertos. So Yucatan has lots of big tamales, too. Where does the word tamal come from? 
Well, it's from the Nahuatl word tamali. You know, this is a Mesoamerican food, uh, an indigenous food from uh, what's now Mexico and Central America. The Spanish word is tamal. You know, of course, so it's tamal or tamales in, in the United States. It's okay to say tamale. You know, we have black traditions in, in the Mississippi Delta where they do hot tamales. And the Mexican-Americans say tamale, so it's cool. And was it always wrapped so you could carry it somewhere? Yes. It's, you know, that's how it's cooked because you have to keep it together during the cooking process. So the only way to do it was to use different leaves, the corn husk or banana leaves. Like if you go, go to any market serves the Central American community in L.A., you can find banana leaves, which are also used in southern Mexico, but also machan. What is machan? It looks very similar to a banana leaf. It's also a green leaf. It's used a lot. You know, they, they impart different qualities and different, and it's really just the, the leaves and the plants that were available to people in those communities. And in Brazil, the pamonia is made with fresh corn husks, green corn husks. So here in LA, there are so many places. I'm, you know, it's really hard to find corn husk tamales that are moist and delicious, consistently so. And so I really love Rosis in Pacoima. I love all the Mexican-American corn tamales that are just, you know, beef, pork, cheese, sweet, chicken. I love all the places that do those types of tamales. But I really love Rosis because the recipes are different. They're from Nayarit. They're doing tamales like that you would find if you went to Nayarit. So they've added some things. There's just like, there's vegetables. It's not just like meat and sauce. You get some vegetables in there. Uh, green olives, and every part of Mexico, every part of Central America, South America, that does their version of tamales does different things in different parts of, of the country. That's Bill Esparza, the man behind L.A.'s Taquiando Festival and the author of El Mexicano. We've been dishing on tamales. Find a link to his Roundup on Eater on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Now we're turning to another traditional Mexican dish that's sometimes eaten during the holidays. For that, here's LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Escarcega. Today we're headed to Southeast Los Angeles. More specifically, we're going to Paramount. And even more specifically, we're going to La Diosa de los Moles. So La Diosa de las Moles, what does that mean? So that translates to the mole goddess. It's a very catchy name, and I would argue it's a very apt name for the chef. And the chef, I mean, you have to really be very confident in your ability to own that title. Yes. Um, I think Rocio Camacho, which is the diosa de los moles, the mole goddess, she's earned that title. She's been in Los Angeles for about three decades She's cooked in all kinds of Mexican kitchens. Um, You've probably tasted her moles before if you've ever eaten at La Casita Mexicana or um, Moles La Tia. Uh, A lot of her recipes have stayed behind in various kitchens. One of my all-time favorite, Jonathan Goldlines, I have several, but this one really sticks out in my mind, is he once described Rocio Camacho as, quote, Johnny Appleseed of the Metate. (laughs) Which is very true. She uh, she plants her mole seed wherever she goes. I love that so Isn't much. That great? It's great. I always think about when he wrote about her for the first time, he talked about the inky stain. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah her uh, mole Oaxaqueño. Yeah. So we, we have to start there. It's a gorgeous mole. It uses various kinds of chiles. She will not give up her um, secret recipe, but she does use up to 30 or 40 ingredients, chilies, spices, seeds, nuts. Depending on the mole, you have, you know, flower petals, you have chocolate, fruits. The dark mole Oaxaqueño is one of the best. It's inky. I think Jonathan once called it, you know, dark as midnight, bitter as tears. It's a it's a wonderful evocative description for a mole that just, it has a, a burn that kind of smolders. It's, it's very, very distinct and very rich and very complicated dish. But what is incredible about her oeuvre Great word. <laughs> is that she has this repertoire, right? So aside from that deep, deep, dark mole. What else is on offer there? Yeah, so her menu changes. Over the months, I've gone a few times and I've seen different things, but you can always count on the classic Oaxaqueño moles, those seven classic moles, some iterations of those. She has a very good rendition of the mancha manteles, which translates as a tablecloth stainer. One of my favorite names, mancha mandeles. It's a really spicy, rich, kind of fruity mole. That's one of my favorites. In the review, I talk at length about her pistachio mole because I don't know about you, Evan, but I, I'm wild for pistachios. I love pistachios and they land a kind of creaminess. Exactly. They work so well in this dish. It's one of her creamiest, thickest moles. It really is a kind of dish where you start eating it, you can't stop. It's so creamy. The texture is so beautiful. The flavor is so nutty and slightly sweet. Really lovely, complex, like everything she does there. So what's so interesting about mole is there's all different kinds of delivery systems to your <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Very true, yes. Um, so what are some of hers? I say in the review that um, one of the easiest ways to get those delicious moles into your body is through the picaditas. So if you've never had picaditas, they're very similar to gorditas or sopes. They're corn masa cakes, and they're kind of usually with shredded chicken and then a ladle of mole on top, and you get three different kinds of moles there, so that's one way. Um, another way is she's taken it off the menu, but if you ask nicely, <laughs> the kitchen will often prepare their fiesta sampler, so she'll do like like a four or five different kinds of moles for you. And sometimes you get lucky and she has like a, a blueberry mole or an apple mole, some more like unusual, hard to find varieties. So is the best strategy going there to pick two or three delivery systems, each one with different moles? I would say yes. <laughs> Definitely. You want to try her range. I think one of the, her gifts is that she has an incredible range. She doesn't just stick to, you know, mole poblano, which is great. She doesn't stick to mole oaxaqueño. Again, great. She really stretches her imagination. She has a lot of family recipes, but she also plays with new ingredients. Um, she takes a lot of joy out of these recipes, you know, by tweaking them and changing them. But then again, you always find the stalwart recipes. So I would say that's probably the best move there is try to taste as many as you can. But um, again, if you just have the mole Oaxaqueño while you're there, that itself is filling in so many different ways. This restaurant is in Paramount. Give us an idea if we're like in the center of LA, like 
Yeah, you know, Mid City. How far away is it? I think Paramount is one of those places. It's right next to Bell Gardens. It seems farther than it is. It. Uh, I live in Inglewood. It's taking me not very long to get there. Um, if you're in Mid City, it of course it depends on the time of day you go, but it's really worth the drive. You'll get there in less than an hour. Um, make a day of it. I mentioned in the review, and you should know that it's very easy to get distracted by the daily lunch buffet. She has a wonderful lunch buffet with a daily rotating selection of Mexican specialties. There's um, there's always at least one or two moles on the table. And then if you go for breakfast, there's chilaquiles, there's huevos revueltos, there's a café de olla. Like, it's a really nice spread. So try to focus on the moles. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think if you're going for your third time, Right. You're allowed to go afield. Right, exactly. And we should mention that she has another restaurant nearby um, in Bell Gardens, Rocio's Mexican Kitchen. And some of the moles are available there. But definitely La Diosa de los Moles in Paramount has a much larger menu. I've been talking with LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Escarcega about La Diosa de los Moles in Paramount. Visit the Good Food website for a link to her LA Times review. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. In a moment, we're looking at some very interesting developments in the world of produce, including the comeback of the world's oldest potato. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Potato, potato. They're one of the most ancient foods, but recent news reveals that perhaps one of the most ancient varieties of them all has been hiding in plain sight in the Four Corners region. They would like to see this potato become like a source of like revenue for the tribes, you know, where indigenous farmers can grow it, sell it to local restaurants and kind of create this sort of income loop. That's journalist Sarah Ventiera. She recently reported for the online magazine Heated. This is one of those stories that I just love because it encompasses so much about humanity and geology and history, everything. How was it discovered? Well, the potato, I guess, was, I don't even like to say rediscovered, but sort of refound by an um, anthropologist, Elizabeth Lauerbeck, out of the University of Utah. She was trying to study ancient diets, you know, over a period of time. So she went to this one site in southern Utah called North Creek Shelter that had been excavated by Brigham Young University's uh, Joel Janetsky and went through, was looking for, um, like, large pieces of food that she could examine, couldn't find them. So she used this technique to look at, like, microbotanicals and was looking through a microscope and found these starches that just... They looked like potatoes, but she didn't know if there were potatoes in the area. And it turned out that, in fact, it was potatoes. So, Actually, potatoes like wild plants growing right there in the area. Exactly, yes. 
So this area where they were found is called Escalante Valley, but used to be called Potato Valley, I understand. Yes, exactly. Mormon settlers, when they arrived in the area, called it Potato Valley because of all the potatoes that were growing in the area. So crazy. So it's so odd that a valley would be called Potato Valley, and then connection to the actual food would fall away so thoroughly that people would no longer really understand why it was called that anymore. Yeah, I mean, the potato had been a part of diets, kind of. There were periods where it was heavily a part of indigenous diets and periods where it fell off. You know, this is over thousands and thousands of years. But when the Mormon pioneers came, they brought, you know, white potatoes, which are uh, the tuberosum species, as well as cattle. And I think the cattle had been walking on the potatoes. So they kind of, they mixed and became nowhere near as prevalent. (laughs) So interesting. So... These potatoes that we're discussing that people are excited about, the Four Corners potato, now it's referred to, they weren't a potato brought in by the white settlers. These were indigenous potatoes or potatoes brought from far away by indigenous people? No, they're indigenous to the Four Corners. When I first started speaking to Cynthia Wilson and Gavin Noyes at the uh, Utah Dinabakea, They were under the assumption that these potatoes were brought up via, like, ancient trade routes down to Peru. Turns out that they were actually in the area all along. They're native. That's so crazy because, you know, we have this idea of foodstuffs having one center where they're born, and then they go out from there. Yeah. These are a different species. Regular potatoes are Solanum tuberosum. These are Solanum jamesii. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. So they're slightly different, but at the same time, still a potato. And one theory of how they were spread once they were in use by indigenous is that the Diné, the Navajo, took them along for the long walk, right? Yeah. So there's, I mean, a bunch of different theories, but that is one of them. You know, back in, I think it was 1864, um, the Diné were rounded up from Dineta, which is their homeland in the Four Corners, Utah, northern Arizona area, and were walked 300 miles to Bosque Redondo to Fort Sumter. Lots of people died along the way. They were there for years. And the 9,000 that remained, of the 9,000 that remained, about 2,300 people passed away because the conditions were so horrible. And so the theory, or one of the theories of Cynthia Wilson's mother, Eloise, proposed was that, you know, the story goes that the Diné brought seeds with them on the long walk so that they could find their way home. Like, it was an important part of their home and their identity in the area. So they think some of them were dropped along the way so that they could find their way back eventually, which they did. Such a great story. It's like Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about the potato itself and its characteristics. How is it different from other potatoes? There's a lot of different kinds of potatoes, obviously. But from the regular, the ones you find in the grocery store, it's a lot smaller. It's about the size of a dime or a marble. It has a very waxy exterior. Um, It can be white or sort of pinkish when it's fresh. But as it ages, it turns brown and it's covered in like a spiral of polka dots. Ooh, That's kind of lovely. They're very cute. (laughs) And what about nutritionally? Nutritionally, it has about two times the protein, two times the zinc, and two times the manganese as regular potatoes or, you know, conventional potatoes, and about three times the calcium and iron. So a powerhouse. Exactly, yes. Are any indigenous activists bringing it back? They are. So... 
the potato has been, they never fully disconnected from it. There are people in, you know, the Diné and Pueblo tribes and new tribes that have had these potatoes all along. They've kept seeds, they've had them in their gardens, but a lot of people disconnected from them. So what Cynthia Wilson at the Utah Dinabakea is trying to do is she's trying to make them like a staple food again and kind of bring them back and re-welcome them into the community. But there's obviously some difficulties in doing so. What are some of the difficulties? I mean, I guess it's, there's a lot of different things. Um, one is, you know, the tribes that came together as part of the Utah Danibakea, they came together to protect Bears Ears National Monument. They didn't always get along. You know, they were like five distinct tribes or nations, just like what you would have in, you know, anywhere else. And, you know, there were rivalries. And pre-colonialization. And, you know, those were only further impacted by colonialization. So you're getting together these people who, you know, they didn't really get along. They came together for this common goal, but there's still sort of a lack of trust in between different tribes that they're trying to overcome in addition to trying to bring this food back in a way that is not following the sort of like corporate monoculture structure. Open source. Exactly. Yes. They want it to be an open source Food product. Exactly. And they want to do it in a way that, like, honors the ecosystem, honors the land. A chef that I spoke to for the story, Carlos Baca, or he doesn't like to be called as a chef anymore. He's the activist formerly known as Chef, who's an indigenous food activist. He's bringing it back in his own way, although he's been foraging for it his entire life. He is what he calls re-indigenizing a plot of land that he has on his farm where he's growing the potato with like juniper pinyon the way it would grow in the wild. Oh, I love that. So it grows kind of like a three sisters idea where they grow near to one another, like a companion planting? Yeah, sort of like that. Oh, I love that. Because of all of this concern, there must be worry that there could be commodification. Yeah, it's sort of like a rush against time and I guess like a rush against capitalism to an extent. The researchers who have been working to bring it back, Lisbeth and Bruce, are doing amazing work. But they are, you know, they would like to see this potato become like a source of like revenue for the tribes, you know, where indigenous farmers can grow it, sell it to local restaurants and kind of create this sort of income loop where I think through this process, Wilson is looking at it from a different way of, you know, they're working together, they're working together very closely, but she wants to sort of like re-welcome it into the community and have it kind of become a part of the community again and not necessarily have it be about money. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is exactly... I wish them a lot of luck. When I first heard about it, I had the same thought, like, this is great. They could, you know, like, grow local produce. It can create this sort of, like, circular economy, and everyone will make more money off of it, and it'll be wonderful. But since reporting the story, my perspective on it has changed. They could also sell it as, you know, seed potatoes. Like, people buy seed potatoes from catalogs, you know? They could have revenue that way, but maybe. And that's kind of an open-source ethos, like seed saving and swapping seeds. Yeah, I think, well, the one thing about the potato that would they make that difficult is the seeds, it grows like most tubers out of the eyes. So they're mostly um, clones that they grow them out of. So I think it's a little bit, you know, it's like an apple tree. If you plant an apple seed, you're not necessarily going to get the apple that you pulled the seed from. It's the same with these potatoes. So that might make the seed catalog idea a little bit more difficult, but... 
they could still do it in other ways. Yeah, all potatoes are grown from eyes when you put them in your garden. It's never a seed. Oh, it's never a seed. So how does that work in a seed catalog? It's just, it's like there are certain plants that are like onion sets or garlic or potatoes that only crazy people grow from <laughs> seed. And you, where you're actually with garlic, you're taking, it looks like a clove of garlic and you're putting it in the ground. And with the potato, you're just taking a cutting that has the eye in it and that's what you're putting in the ground. Oh. And they ship those to you. Oh, I didn't know that they shipped those. Uh-huh. Mind blown. <laughs> I'm so glad I could have been. <laughs> You've taught me so much. I'm so glad I can teach you. Um, well, thank you so much for the story because this is one of those stories that is so academic in a way because uh, so much work was done at a university that it risks not being told to a larger community. And I think your article in Heated was great because you know, it brought it at least to our attention. Thank you. I went down a lot of academic rabbit holes on like the whole geological sequence of the Grand Staircase and all of those things. It's incredibly beautiful landscape. That's what drew me to the story in the first place. I have a bit of a Southern Utah obsession, so I've been going quite a bit and um, spending time with people from the area who told me about the story, and I was just so grateful I heard about it and so excited about it. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. That's writer Sarah Ventiera. We've been discussing the re-emergence of the Four Corners potato. To read her article for Heated about the oldest spud, visit kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you've ever made a shaker lemon pie or made lemon marmalade, you know what it's like to pick out seed after seed from clingy acidic pulp. It's one of those kitchen tasks that's less meditative and just a pain. But if you've ever seen the face on a prep chef who's been told by the boss, see those 40 pounds of lemons, get the seeds out, you'll understand why it's convenient. That's David Karp. He's a pomologist or an expert on fruit. Here in L.A., he's affectionately known to some as the fruit detective. We've been talking about a new seedless lemon that's making inroads in California, one that's allegedly an improvement over the original article. He recently reported on it for the L.A. Times. Who is bringing seedless lemons to the market? Wonderful Citrus, which is part of the wonderful company that brought us, well, they were then called Cuties, now called Halos, pomegranates they made a big deal out of was previously a really arcane esoteric fruit. They're the largest citrus grower in California and the largest fresh citrus grower in the United States. And they've planted 3,500 acres of wonderful seedless lemons. That's their brand name for three different varieties, mostly from Australia and one from South Africa. And this is on both sides of the border. They're planning to plant 1,000 or so acres in Mexico, too, to fill out their season. The ones that they have planted in California are in three growing areas, the Coachella and Imperial Desert, in the San Joaquin Valley, and in the coast, Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. And those ripen basically that provide supply from November to May or so. And the ones from Mexico will fill out the rest of the year once they're bearing. How does a lemon become seedless? Well... There are natural mutations that have arisen around the world, but the problem with most of those is that they weren't quite as productive as normal lemons, and because it's not clear that producers can get a significant premium for seedless lemons, they were reluctant to plant something that yielded 20% less, and they only got a 5% or no percent premium. So these lemons, however, the two pH lemons, and the name comes from a farm in Queensland, Australia, where I'm going to be this coming March, um... 2-PH is the natural acidity of lemon juice. And the Presslers, Craig Pressler 
irradiated budwood that sticks for propagating lemons um, with gamma radiation, and that caused natural, well, it caused mutations. Uh, they had to evaluate maybe hundreds or thousands of, of trees, and before they found a few that were just right, that were equally productive as normal lemons, and that had the same organoleptic characteristics, the same flavor, aroma, juice, skin, general look of a lemon. So when people hear that you use gamma rays on budwood, they are alarmed, but this is something that is how common? It's been done since Dick Hens created the Star Ruby Grapefruit in the 1950s. About the time that I was born, it's been around for a long time. Um, it was used to create the Tango Mandarin at UC Riverside from W. Mercadoff Ware, and that created basically, the, that was a large part of the creation of the seedless mandarin industry in California. They're perfectly healthy. I guess it is theoretically possible that you could irradiate something and come up with a lemon. I've heard that some of the lemons at one selection at UCR tasted pretty horrible, but like, I don't think I can describe on, on the radio exactly what it tasted like. But obviously those are not the ones that are selected. Lemons naturally have relatively little variability because they're all derived from one cross, a cross of citron and sour orange that originated in northeastern India thousands of years ago. And so, yes, there is some variation, like the variegated pink that you sometimes come across in markets. There's not a lot, or not enough to get commercial production of seedless lemons off the ground. So this particular lemon that Wonderful is going to be bringing to market, it's not only seedless, but it has a thinner skin as well? Oh, it's very—you won't know the difference. Um, I mean, it, it, this is measuring in millimeters. Um, so it's not—because when I think of when someone says thinner skin, I think Meyer lemon compared to Eureka, is thinner. And there are other varieties like the Yen Ben Lisbon as thinner skin. But basically, you wouldn't tell the difference unless somebody could hold a gun to your head and say, is this a normal lemon or, or is this the new kind? And you wouldn't know the difference until you cut it in half and saw there were no seeds. With Wonderful, which is not only a large agricultural concern, they're a huge marketing juggernaut. So are they bringing this to market with a premium? Well, that remains to be seen just how much of a premium they'll get. There are other companies like Sunkiss that's had these for a while. Limonera is a classic lemon-growing company. Had small quantities of them, but there wasn't a huge market demand. Wonderful thinks that they can help boost demand by promoting them. You know, before you introduce a major product at supermarkets these days, you've got to, in some cases, pay for slotting fees for shelf space. You want to introduce something that people don't know about. It's sort of the chicken or the egg thing. Is How's there going to be demand if people don't know about it? How is people going to know about it if there isn't supply? Because nobody's going to promote something for which there's no supply. A big company like Wonderful, one thing that they're really good at doing is researching the germplasm, the varieties somewhere in the world, coming up with the best, and then gambling when they think that it's justified, and then promoting it to the hilt. So kudos to them for that. Is there any downside to this world without seeds? Well, nobody actually propagates lemon trees by planting seeds anyway. You couldn't do that because they're heterozygotic, meaning that you'd get all sorts of different things looking like citron or sour orange reflecting their ancestry. AKA, so, they don't grow true. They don't go true to type, exactly. Um, I don't think so. There are some cases in citrus in which the presence of seeds actually results in a more flavorful, aromatic fruit. I would not say, having tasted this many times over the last three years since I was first privy to tasting this lemon in a test plot at Rayo near Visalia, um, where hopefully I'll be in another couple of days, again, looking for the next big thing, I can't say that there's any real big difference. I think you'd be very, very happy. And you can get them in markets now. They should be available at least for another four or five months. 
I know you talked to some some professional cooks, some chefs who patronize uh, vendors from the farmer's market who buy regular varieties that haven't yet been introduced as new, which have seeds. What was their reaction to the news? Well, one chef that I spoke to, the chef of Mar Vista restaurant, was delighted at the thought because she has to cut an awful lot of lemons every week. And she does it herself. But if you've ever seen the face on a prep chef who's been told by the boss, see those 40 pounds of lemons, get the seeds out, you'll understand why it's convenient, certainly. And that's what a lot of the fruit market is about these days. There are people at the farmer's market, however. I spoke to Julia Hoban, who works for Penryn Specialties that just stopped selling persimmons. And they also have some lemons from Penryn, California. She was suspicious of the fact that the seeds were missing because all she cares about is the flavor. There also are people that think that the presence of seeds in citrus is natural, which it is, but a lot of people are happy to have the convenience rather than the ancestral type. In some cases, you're losing out because the aroma or the juice is not the same as the original type. In this case, you're not. It's really variety by variety. I mean, the navel orange, right? Exactly. That's been around. All the other forms of citrus have lost their seeds. Particularly significant has been the mandarins, uh, tangerines, which since they lost their seeds, the plantings in California have gone from 7,000 acres to 70,000 acres. Naval oranges have been around for a century or more. They basically built the California citrus industry. Limes are mostly seedless. The bearish limes, aka Persian or Tahiti limes, the, the large-fruited limes of commerce are seedless. The one kind of citrus that hasn't quite lost its seed yet is the kumquat, which you, which you would think, because it's small and you pop it in your mouth, would be the most desirable to be seedless. And there is a seedless form, Nordman Seedless. And go on the Citrus Variety Collection website to learn about that. Um, I'm all in favor of that particular form becoming seedless. Thank you so much, David. All right. It's always a pleasure. That's pomologist David Karp, a.k.a. The Fruit Detective. We've been talking about the seedless lemons from The Wonderful Company. In a moment, our look at an organization that's fighting hunger and food waste at the same time. My conversation with Rick Namias of Food Forward when Good Food Continues. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. We have more people hungry in Southern California than the entire population of New Mexico. In the season of giving, we take a moment to look at one of our local heroes fighting the dual epidemic of food waste and hunger. Rick Namaya started Food Forward a decade ago when he stumbled over some fallen fruit in his own neighborhood. Ten years later, the organization is only just picking up steam. It's crazy. It's really crazy. It's crazy. I mean, really, looking at it from outside, for me, you are one of the miracle success stories in the oh, nonprofit world. Thank locally. you so much. That means a lot. It means a lot coming from you, and uh, I appreciate being able to be here again. So, Food Forward is celebrating a decade. Just now, yeah. Talk to us about its inception. Well, it's it's actually kind of bittersweet, <laughs> and I, I hope I keep it together because Food Forward was born with the decline of my first dog, and we lost our second dog this week. So, oh, it's um, how circular and yeah, strange. it's crazy. This is like the first time I'm actually putting those pieces together. But as my last dog got older and slower, I'd actually like kind of stop looking at just what was going on on my phone and whatever, and actually took a slower, more studied walk around my neighborhood. And I saw things going to waste as the recession of 2009 was starting to to hit. And there were these laden fruit trees of every kind, mostly citrus, though, in my neighborhood. And I just was like the equation of 
why can't this abundance just go a few blocks to a food pantry where there's a line of people? And it was kind of born out of a desire to do something very local and very controlled and try and make some change after uh, the 08 election. And literally, it was just gathering volunteers together and getting permission from a homeowner. Totally. To glean a backyard tree. And it was so funny how many people had never heard the word glean before. Even now, it's still something, but it's quite a biblical term. I mean, it comes from the book of Ruth. And although I'm not a religious scholar, although I have religion in my degree, there's something about the community base coming together around food, which crosses all faiths. And I think there was something very powerful about that at a time when people were feeling a need to be part of the change that was in the air. And we were very, very fortunate to kind of hit that zeitgeist and just take off with it. And we began harvesting backyard fruit trees week after week. I couldn't handle it. And soon I brought in new volunteers and leaders, and it just kind of built this beautiful head of steam. And by the end of that first year, we had harvested 100,000 pounds of backyard fruit by hand, which is no small feat. That's a lot of fruit. And if you flash forward 10 years to today, on a slow day, Food Forward is recovering and donate a, donating 100,000 pounds of, of produce of all varieties. A day. A day. Yesterday, I was at the new produce pit stop, which is a, the first facility we've ever had. We've basically been doing just-in-time produce uh, recovery out of trucks and loading docks and church parking lots. and Which means you didn't have the luxury of having fruit stay overnight, for Correct. example. Virtually no refrigeration, no staging areas, no security, that kind of thing. And at the Produce Pit Stop, which is a 7,000-square-foot facility, um, basically at the corner of Southeast L.A. Uh, in the city of Bell, we had like 200 pallets crowding for room in the refrigerator yesterday. And as I was sitting there, just these, it's like air traffic control, these kind of pallets come flying in and out. They maybe last there two hours or two days, but they're on their way to someplace, you know, not just in LA and Ventura County anymore, which is what we were doing for the first several years. They're now going anywhere from Santa Barbara down to San Diego. And an occasion, you know, if we've got too much, we're obviously not going to throw it away. So we call friends in Las Vegas and that food bank might come and take it. So it's phenomenal, and it's it's definitely not a handful of us that are running it anymore. It's a team and a staff and a board and 4,000 volunteers every year that get behind this monster and make it happen. It's incredible. So take us through the life of a piece of recovered fruit. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll start with the middle child, because I'm the middle child, right? And basically, that's our farmer's market recovery program, which is now active at 25 farmer's markets every week. And we might, you know, have our volunteers out uh, canvassing the the market as they will with with their food forward boxes. And they'll stop at Alex Weiser's stand. And whoever at Alex's uh, uh, stand would ask for a box or two or three, depending on how much produce they think they'll have at the end of the day, some surplus. So what this program is about is gleaning produce that remains that farmers bring down to sell. Correct. Um, What people don't realize is not all, but a lot of that produce that's not sold at the end of a farmer's market um, session may get dumped because it takes more fuel to move it back to the farm where it would just be composted. So about seven years ago, we created the Farmer's Market Recovery Program that started at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, yay, and has grown now all the way down from Long Beach up to Ventura. 
Um, and those those folks will go to Alex Weiser's farm and they'll ask for, you know, what what would you like to donate? They'll get a couple of boxes. And in those boxes might be, you know, 30 pounds of fingerling potatoes. Those potatoes will be set aside with 60 other boxes of produce that's recovered that day at that market. They'll be aggregated depending on the number of um, nonprofit agencies that are going to be showing up that day to pick it up. They'll be sorted, you know, let's say it's 600 pounds, they'll 10 agencies, 60 pounds per agency. They will like mechanically, um, you know, by watch, drive up, pick up that stuff, sign for it, and then take off. And they'll take it to LA Family Housing or Downtown Women's Center or a place called Home or one of 200 agencies that, that need food and high quality produce to feed kids, uh, immigrants, LGBT folks, folks with terminal illness. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of is how many different types of people Food Forward's produce reaches, and they don't pay a dime for it. How many organizations do you send to? Directly, we donate to about 200 agencies across these eight counties, but they drop down kind of um, through their loading docks and their facilities to another 1,600. So it's about 1,800 agencies across this uh, vast footprint which equals uh, over 2 million people right now. How is Food Forward um, fundamentally different, or is it fundamentally different than, let's say, the Behemoth, the L.A. Food Bank? It's complementary. You know, what Mike Flood and his folks do is great work there, but we're really different. First of all, we're exclusively produce. Uh, We are fruits and vegetables of over 200 kinds last time we counted. It is also a completely free philanthropic model, meaning we live on donations of uh, grants and individual giving, but we also charge nothing to anybody for that produce. And that produce is um, given out in a very, very curated way. For example, I was talking about the farmer's market. We have agencies that are part of that program that actually will cook with that food immediately because come summer, we're going to have a bumper crop of beautiful tomatoes. And those have to be dealt with very differently than the hand fruit that has to go to a homeless program. So we have an agency relations uh, department that is very hands-on with kind of making sure that if you're an agency, we're not just going to dump you with what we've got, but we're going to find out what your needs are, how often you you need it, who is the population you're feeding, do you have refrigeration, do you have an on-site kitchen, and so forth. So we have, um, you know, we're going to move about 25, 26 million pounds of food by the end of this year, which is more than basically um, any nonprofit of our kind on the Western U.S., which that fact blows me away. But again, by not dealing with diapers, formula, turkeys, whatnot, we can be real experts at what we do. And so the gentlemen who are our drivers who pick up the wholesale produce starting at four in the morning from one of 300 donors across the region. And and we should say that that they get a lot of this produce from the produce markets in downtown. It's the, the wholesale terminal is the hub, but many of those folks use the wholesale terminal as almost like their showroom and their big warehouses are within a mile or two. We have deep relationships with these folks and the gentlemen that drive for us, and there's, there's five of them now, um, they are actually not just drivers. They're ambassadors for the organization. So our mission and how we work and what we do is front and center. But most importantly, they inspect that produce to make sure that it's 80% viable or better, meaning we're not taking trash, we're not taking stuff that's really headed to compost, but food that's really high quality that you or I would be paying dollars per pound at a uh, supermarket or at a kind of a restaurant later. Like it might be 100 cases of broccoli. Oh my God, if you saw the broccoli and Brussels sprouts that are in the pit stop right now, it'd be crazy. We literally, I think there were three truckloads that were donated 
uh, by by a major major donor, and I can't. Some of these people kind of not say squares to secrecy, but they don't want to be known that they're doing the donations because some of it is just to equalize the market instability. Right. Because after Thanksgiving, when you've got a flood of Brussels sprouts and broccoli, the market price will plummet before you can actually make some money for Christmas. So we've been seeing that equation at the scale we're at, and it's also been interesting to see cross culturally the different populations that are interested in different types of food. So, I mean, every day I'm learning. And you have, um, so some of these organizations that you work with, who then they have organizations that they work with, service different neighborhoods all over the city. Yeah, we have a great relationship with uh, a a Watts organization called WLCAC. They're all about social justice. They're all about financial literacy and so forth. And about three years ago, they wanted to start a food program, but had zero uh, muscles in that area. Um, but what they had is street cred. They had great relationships with the community. So we came in with the food and some volunteers and shoulder to shoulder created what we call produce pickups. And basically what's amazing is we will drop 10,000 pounds of mixed produce on pallets at their back door at this beautiful facility in Watts twice a month, every uh, first and third Wednesday, I believe. And they will get upwards of 150, 200 families coming through and shopping, if you will, at this free market, where they're in a very dignified way encouraged to take as much produce as they can use, not be wasteful, but we're not giving them bags that are pre-sorted and things that they have to take. It's really much about what they want. And what that allows us is for Food Forward and our volunteers to have that hands-on experience of taking this kind of virtuous circle all the way through but also to work with a nonprofit that's three times our age and learn from them on how community relations really work. Because we don't want to be seen as riding into an area of disadvantaged folks and saying, oh, we've got your food for you. We really have felt that there has to be a, a real high degree of cultural sensitivity around this and, and, and dignity. There's a big piece of it when it comes to food. So this was a year, I mean, I remember when it was just you, you were doing a GoFundMe for your first truck. Yes, yes. And what a victory that was to come oh up with God. the thirty or forty thousand. You got great memory, Evan. Oh, well, absolutely, I mean, yeah. And and then this year was all about opening the pit stop. Yeah. So, what do you see twenty twenty? Um, what is your challenge for twenty twenty? Um, first of all, hitting ten years was a great year to take stock. We got some new amazing board members, added some diversity to the board, which is really important. And I think if you were to like walk into our office right now, you'd see just a lot of wonderful kind of um, end of year closure and reflection, which will set us up for next year to really kind of fine tune the beast. We've never taken a year to breathe, to reflect, to rejuvenate while we continue to work. So what you'll see is continued partnerships and building of uh, capacity but you're not going to see us popping up in, you know, with tentacles in, in other areas next year. I think the board fully supports and, and I fully support and I think the staff does. You know, how do we even take the backyard harvest model, which is now kind of, you know, uh, to me, it's the gateway drug to Food Forward and has always been a very special thing is how, how can we take a few months and really look at every piece of that beast and make it stronger and make it more sustainable? And that's what what we're looking to to do at 2020. There'll be a minor uptick in pounds. We hope to go from about 26 million to about 29 million. But I'll tell you, Evan, what's been crazy is that every month since the pit stop has opened, we've seen about between two to two and a half million pounds of food flow through there. 
And that in itself is pretty crazy because we're actually in a warehouse space that can get bigger. We've, we've carved out one quarter of a 40,000 square foot space because of the potential growth. It's not happening in 2020. I will, I will just keel over if it does. But I think the possibility of dreaming next year and saying, what, were the, what will these next few years of, of continuing to scale be like? The collaboration with uh, large recovery operations on the border and places where we might have just begun conversations and go deeper. Because here's the, here's the, the horrible fact, is that we have more people hungry in Southern California than the entire population of New Mexico. All right, just imagine that for one minute. It's it's shameful because there is no more of an abundant place than Los Angeles as far as food coming in here. It is like nearly double any other port or any other entry point for food. So when you look at those facts, I still feel there's so much work to be done in LA and Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, Bakersfield, all these counties around us that until we kind of take care of our own, it doesn't make sense to go any further. And there's a lot here to do. So how can listeners get involved? Liter- listeners can get involved first and foremost. We have a, an amazing match going on with Patagonia. We have a one-for-one-dollar match for donations financially, and we want to go into 2020 super strong. So open your wallets, give us some cash, and know that right now for that dollar, it's, it's going to be $2, which is pretty crazy wonderful, and we, we're really grateful to Patagonia for that. But that um, beyond the individual giving and the foundation giving, if any of you foundation people out there have discretionary funds, we are, again, 501c3 tax deductible. But volunteering, get involved with us. There is the easiest, you know, foodforward.org is the website. It's a gateway for all that stuff. People can volunteer as individuals, as families, as groups. We have team building experiences um, where you can bring out your whole staff and do stuff. We have really try to make it so... You can actually be part of the California dream of what agricultural used to uh, be like here, whether it's through harvesting or gleaning uh, or, or come into the offices and donate some time. But right now it's about fundraising. I'd be lying if, if I didn't say that. You know, I think the last thing about that is for people to reflect as they are home through the holidays and there are these amazing tables full of food is how do they individually move the needle on waste? Because as, as we've learned Food waste is one of those huge climate change contributors, and we as individuals necessarily and ha- you know we just we have to get behind those those mini actions of not buying as much. There's going to be plenty of food on the table. No one's gonna no one's gonna look at you sideways. But I'd much rather go to a dinner where you feel like the the leftovers are are uh, manageable than than are headed to the trash. That's Rick Namias, founder and executive director of Food Forward. We're celebrating a decade of getting food into the hands of those in need. To learn about giving or volunteering opportunities, visit foodforward.org. After the break, we close out with the Market Report. Stick around. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now we close out our show at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Here's Jillian Ferguson. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. It is a very wet Wednesday here in Santa Monica this week, and I'm talking to Abraham Lemus, who is one of the chefs who has braved the rain to come to the market this week. 
Abraham is the chef de cuisine at Nora in West Hollywood on Santa Monica. And Abraham, I noticed you have some persimmons in your cart today. What are you going to be doing with them? So the persimmons are going to be used on our pork chop. Uh, we try to change the fruit seasonally. We're pickling them, so we're basically putting them in a little bit of water, sugar, and sherry vinegar. We try to keep it nice and fresh. We don't like to veer away from the produce. We like to kind of let it speak for itself. We're also putting it in a seasonal grain bowl or a seasonal fruit bowl, as we call it. It's kind of the two methods right now that we're using with persimmon. Okay, so when you're talking about the pickled persimmons, are they lightly pickled, like a quick pickle, or is it something that takes a few weeks to prepare? No, it's a quick pickle. As soon as it gets into the restaurant, you know, we clean them up, have them on nice and ready to go, and then the cooks will go over. They'll pick uh, whatever persimmon looks the ripest, and they'll cold pickle it really quick. It's uh, All the persimmons are done for the day. Everything's fresh. We check them the next day for consistency, but if they're too soft, uh, we'll have them do fresh ones. So it just depends. Okay, so you want a little bit of texture on the fruit. Yeah, you want a little bit of texture. You want a little bit of bite. You don't want to give anybody a mushy pickle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nothing worse than a mushy pickle. Nothing worse. <laughs> <laughs> and so how does the, the sweetness and the, the sourness of the pickle sort of pair with the pork chop? Uh, with the pork chop, I mean, think about like a peach. A peach is sweet, but it's also slightly sour. So the acidity kind of plays off with the pork chop flavor. Um, we marinated in rosemary, a little bit of chili flake, olive oil, a little bit of garlic. So we let that marinate for a while and it kind of plays a nice little game of like sweet, savory, sour, try to hit all those um, benchmarks for the dish. Sounds delicious. And I assume that you're using the fuyu persimmons, the ones that are hard? Yeah, we're using uh, the Fuyu persimmons. Obviously, the Haichia are going to be a little softer. We're doing a couple experiments right now where we're letting them just go super ripe. So it's pretty much as soon as you open it up, it's instant jelly pretty much. So we're playing around with that concept right now. All right. Well, thank you so much. This sounds delicious. All right. Thank you. That was Abraham Lemus, the chef de cuisine at Nora in West Hollywood. He's been telling us what to do with those Fuyu persimmons. Yeah. One of the farmers who grows persimmons and brings them to the market is Laura Ramirez of JJ's Lone Daughter Ranch. Many people know Laura from her almost year-round avocados that she brings to the market. But in the fall, you have persimmons as well. How many varieties are you bringing to the market these days? Oh my gosh. Well, I grow a lot of different varieties, but the main varieties I bring to the market are fuyus, giant fuyus, and haichias, which are so sweet and just taste like fall and all kinds of cinnamony goodness. So... Walk us through the difference, because the fuyus you want to eat hard, right? And then the haichias, which you were just talking about, you want to wait until they're almost falling apart. I mean, the way you sell them, it's like in a cup, because if you were to sell them any other way, they would just fall apart on you. Oh, yeah, they have to be like a water balloon, or you will hate me because your mouth will pucker up, and you will just cuss me out and never want a persimmon again. And, you know, I always say, me, I like to have a little cocktail now and then, so I like my persimmons with some dark rum on top and some creme fraiche, and, oh, so delicious, and it just reminds me of Thanksgiving and Christmas, and... It's all the goodies. Oh, that sounds so good. So do you just cut them open at the top and pour the rum right over? Do you squeeze them out in a bowl? Well, I'll, I'll do them any way you want, but <laughs> I like it that way, and I also like them frozen. Frozen like a sorbet is really delicious. That's really my favorite way to eat them. And then you can have them year-round, too. You can freeze it, let it defrost a little bit, put the rum over it or brandy or whatever whatever cocktail you want. You know, alcohol is always enhances the flavor. It makes it taste like a pumpkin pie. Mm-hmm. I learned that trick from you years ago, and every year <laughs> I put a few hachillas in my freezer. Me bad, me bad. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So, Laura, you also have this other variety, which we don't really see very often in the store. Sometimes they're called chocolate persimmons. I know you have a very limited variety, but they're so unique. I wonder if you could explain what a chocolate persimmon is exactly. Well, a chocolate persimmon, there's all kinds of different varieties that are a little bit darker inside. There's like something called a cinnamon, a maru. There's a chocolate persimmon. There's a coffee cake. And a lot of times you have to educate people on that the inside is a little bit darker inside or they think you're selling them rotten fruit, you know, but once they taste it, they know it's just terrific and it's, it really does taste like fall. Now that the weather is turning cooler, how does that affect the fruit? The fruit, it gets a lot sweeter and it ripens really fast on the tree. So this time of year is the best time really to buy the persimmons and have them at their sweetest because once you get a few cold snaps, it just kind of brings on the sweetness. And what about when to pick them for you as the farmer? Do you pick them right before you bring them to market? Do you want to hold them on the tree as long as possible? Well, it depends on the variety. With the Fuyus, you want them to be hard. So what you do is you pick them and you bring them to market within a day or two. And then with the Hychias, we pick them and we uh, let them sit and ripe because a lot of times Hychias might take up to four to six weeks to ripen up to get to a nice, soft water balloon consistency. So patience is a virtue. Don't rush it or your mouth will be puckered. Mm. Well, how much longer are you going to have persimmons this season? Normally, once it starts getting really cold, everything kind of ripens up real quick on the tree. So I'm thinking if Mother Nature is still rainy and cold, that prior to the end of December will probably be the end of the season this year. All right. Great. Thank you, Laura. You're welcome. That was Laura Ramirez of JJ's Lone Daughter Ranch in Redlands. You can find her persimmons at the Wednesday and Saturday Santa Monica markets in downtown Santa Monica and at Hollywood on Sunday. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can always subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, please take the time to leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team and a very happy holiday season to everyone. Nick Leal, Laurel Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck Previteri, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Laura Kondarajan, and Amy Ta. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll be back next week with more Good Food. <laughs>